welcome to the second episode in Herbert Smith Freehills' podcast series on construction contract and claims management. For those of you who are new to this podcast series, my name is Noe Minamakata and I'm the professional support lawyer in the London Construction Disputes team. In this episode, I'm joined by Jake Reynolds, an associate who is also in our construction disputes team in London, to discuss the pitfalls and some of the legal and practical issues in relation to suspending or terminating a construction contract. Hello, Jake. Hello. So, Jake, let's start with the topic of suspension. Although before we get into the detail, let's clarify what we're talking about when we say suspension. Broadly speaking, there are two kinds of suspension, aren't there? On the one hand, there's suspension by the contractor, which tends to be for non-payment, although some contracts do provide further grounds for suspension. On the other hand, there's suspension by the employer, which may be exercisable where there is cause or for the employer's convenience. Jake, can you start us off by providing a brief overview of the legal basis for both types of suspension? Sure. Taking suspension by the contractor for non-payment, the first point to note is that under English law, there is no common law right to suspend work when payment is due. The contractor or employer, if it is the unpaid party, therefore needs to turn to the provisions of the construction contract itself. If the contract is silent on the issue, then the Housing Grants Construction and Regeneration Act 1996, which we'll refer to as the Construction Act, might assist. As most of our listeners will be aware, the Construction Act is a main statute governing construction operations in the UK. Section 112 of the Act allows an unpaid party to suspend any or all of its obligations under the construction contract if the other party has failed to pay by the relevant time for payment. Just pausing there briefly, why might suspension be a useful remedy for non-payment? Well, the ability to spend any or all of an unpaid party's obligations, which is conferred by the Construction Act, is useful in that it relieves the unpaid party from having to comply with its obligations under the contract and also allows to put commercial pressure on the other side to pay up. OK, and what about the contractual position? How do construction contracts tend to deal with suspension? Most construction contracts for projects in the UK tend to mirror the provisions of the Construction Act or confirm the party's rights under the Construction Act. So, practically speaking, there's generally not much difference between the contractual right and the statutory right. And what about for international projects? Well, it obviously differs depending on the contract, but international construction contracts can include additional grounds on which the contractor can suspend the contract beyond non-payment. Clause 2.4 of FIDIC 2017, for example, also includes a right for the contractor to suspend performance and ultimately terminate the contract if the employer does not provide reasonable evidence of its financial arrangements within 28 days of the contractor's request to do so. OK, let's turn to an employer's right to suspend, which tends to be broader than the contractor's right, doesn't it? Yes, construction contracts tend to allow an employer to suspend progress of part or all of the works at any time and for any reason. A good example is Clause 8.9 of FIDIC 2017. So an employer could suspend progress regardless of whether or not the contractor is in default. For example, if it needs to reassess the viability of the project as a result of changing market conditions. Yeah, or possibly as a result of unforeseen external factors, such as political unrest, for example. Okay, so those are some of the reasons why an employer might want to suspend the contract. But what are the key risks that an employer should consider before exercising this right? The main risk is that if the employer suspends a contract for reasons other than the contractor's default, the contractor will most likely claim an extension of time to the extent that the time for the completion has been delayed by the instruction to suspend and or suspension-related costs. 
Most construction contracts would entitle the contractor to claim time relief and compensation in the event of a suspension that is not attributable to the contractor. Having said that, there will often be a dispute as to the cause of suspension or the extent to which the instruction to suspend actually caused any delay. Or perhaps even a dispute as to the quantum of suspension-related costs or the type of costs that the contractor can claim. I guess ideally the parties should have clearly defined in the contract the nature and measure of suspension costs which the contractor can claim. But this isn't always the case, is it? And these sorts of claims can be ripe for dispute. Yeah, exactly. One way to avoid the scenarios is for the contractor to substantiate its claims very clearly from the outset, and importantly, using a methodology that has been agreed with the employer. For any loss and expense type claims, the contractor also needs to be able to demonstrate that any costs being claimed have actually been incurred, and also that there is a causal link between the relevant costs and the suspension. And conversely, the employer needs to clarify with the contractor precisely what substantiation it expects to see. As always, maintaining dialogue and communication is key. So we've been focusing until now on the employer's reasons for suspension as well as the specific risks to the employer, but why don't we turn now back to the position of the contractor? Sure. Usually the main commercial impetus for the contractor to suspend its obligations is to exert pressure on an employer so as to ultimately secure payment. Suspension for this reason is likely to fracture the relationship though, so it's a matter of commercial judgment in determining whether the potential upside is worth it. And what are some of the pitfalls and risks that a contractor should be aware of? Firstly, the contractor should carefully assess the facts and make sure that it actually has a right to suspend. Wrongful suspension may amount to repudiation. For example, even if the employer appears to have failed to pay a sum owing, a contractor might ultimately be found to have committed a repudiatory breach by suspending if the employer is able to rely on an equitable right of set-off or abatement, meaning that the sums claimed by the contractor were not in fact payable. The contractor should therefore be certain that the appropriate circumstances have arisen to justify the suspension. Conversely, an employer faced with the threat of a potential suspension should determine whether they might have a defence of equitable set-off or abatement. Another thing for contractors to remember is that even where the contract has been validly suspended, they'll still need to adhere to any applicable statutory duties during the suspension period. And what about the usual issue of contractual notice requirements? Yeah, so another consideration is obviously ensuring that any notice requirements under the contract have been complied with. This actually applies to both contractor-instigated suspensions as well as those instructed by the employer. I should also note that for suspensions pursuant to the Construction Act, Section 112 of the Act provides for both substantive and timing requirements in relation to the notice to be given by the unpaid party before suspending its performance. Complying with any applicable notice requirements is very important, as suspending pursuant to an invalid notice may well give rise to arguments of wrongful suspension, and it might be found that the suspending party is in repudiary breach. Okay, Jake, could you sum up the key takeaways in relation to suspension? In practice, the right to suspend is, and should be, used sparingly. Although this is partially due to the potential legal pitfalls of suspending a contract, It's also down to the commercial implications of suspension and the impact it can have on the ongoing relationship between the employer and the contractor. Whilst not as drastic as termination, the right to suspend still needs to be exercised with caution. A party should therefore stress test its legal grounds for suspension, as well as the likely financial consequences before suspending the contract. Well then, moving on to the topic of termination. Firstly, Jake, how do contractual termination rights generally differ as between contractors and employers, if at all? Typically, a contractor's contractual termination rights tend to be more limited than employers. Although this largely depends on the contract, 
contractors' termination rights tend to be limited to an employer's failure to pay amounts owing. On the other hand, employers generally have more extensive grounds on which to terminate, including for convenience. Other usual grounds for termination include abandonment of the works by the contractor, subcontracting the whole of the works, a contractor's failure to provide the required performance security or insolvency. This might be a good time to explain the difference between contractual termination and termination at common law, particularly as it seems that some of the grounds you mentioned there probably wouldn't amount to a repudiatory breach of contract, giving rise to a right to terminate at common law. Exactly. One significant difference between contractual termination rights and the right to terminate at common law is that the former can allow a party to terminate the contract on the basis of actions or circumstances that don't necessarily amount to a breach of contract or default. For example, contractor insolvency probably wouldn't amount to a breach of contract, being a repudiatory breach justifying termination of common law, but it is one of the most common grounds giving rise to a contractual right of termination. Another difference is that contractual termination rights can be subject to cure periods. Where a cure period applies, the party purporting to terminate the contract must give the other party an opportunity to correct the breach or circumstances giving rise to the right to terminate. Otherwise, the termination could be unjustified. But presumably there are some circumstances which may give rise to both a contractual and a common law right to terminate. Yeah. So, for example, FIDIC 2017 allows an employer to terminate if the contractor, quote, abandons the works or otherwise plainly demonstrates an intention not to continue performance of the contractor's obligations under the contract. Conduct such as this can also constitute a repudiatory breach of contract, entitling the employer to terminate the contract of common law. So where there are overlapping rights to terminate, how should a party determine the grounds on which to terminate the contract? Whilst a particular breach or set of circumstances might give rise to overlapping rights to terminate, the consequences of terminating under a contract often differ from those of common law. For example, terminating for repudiatory breach of common law can entitle a party to loss of bargain damages or damages for loss of contract, whereas this remedy might not be available if a contractual right to terminate is exercised, for example, in the case of a termination for convenience. If the consequences of terminating pursuant to a contractual right are inconsistent with those that would arise under common law termination, then the terminating party generally has to make an election between the two. What happens if a party elects to exercise only its contractual right to terminate when it could also have exercised its common law right to terminate? If the consequences of contractual termination and termination at common law are consistent, then the terminating party might later be able to rely on both grounds, even though it originally relied on only one ground. However, as a general rule, if a party fails to exercise a right to terminate, which could have been exercised, that party could lose the right as well as all the remedies that flow from it. This actually applies regardless of whether the relevant right was exercised pursuant to a contractual term or a right at common law. It seems then that the terminating party needs to very carefully consider what rights it can and should exercise at the time of termination. That's right. What's more, a termination notice can't be undone. So if a party exercised a wrong right to terminate or had no right to terminate in the first place, then it could find itself on the receiving end of a wrongful termination claim. You mentioned the termination notice. What sort of formalities need to be adhered to when drafting one? Construction contracts typically set out detailed provisions which govern the timing and form of any termination notices to be given. When exercising a right to terminate, therefore, the terminating party should ensure that it strictly complies with these notice requirements. A defective termination notice might not be invalidated if the error was negligible, but if the notice is found to be ineffective and the terminating party also had no valid grounds to terminate, giving such notice could constitute a repudiatory breach in itself. 
And what about the substance of the termination notice? The terminating party needs to exercise clearly and unequivocally its right to terminate in the termination notice. It also needs to specify clearly the grounds on which it is terminating the contract. But in order to specify its grounds for termination, surely the terminating party needs to have a detailed understanding of the facts, as well as the legal and technical arguments to support its election to terminate the contract pursuant to a particular right. Given that it takes time to gather this level of information, wouldn't this increase the risk that the innocent party is taken to have affirmed the contract, leading to a loss of its right to terminate? An unreasonable delay in exercising a right to terminate, or the innocent party continuing to perform and accept performance of the contract, could lead to a party losing its right to terminate. Another scenario is where the innocent party leads the breaching party to believe that it won't enforce its right to terminate. But where a party is uncertain as to its entitlement to terminate a contract, or the correct ground on which to terminate, one option that may buy the innocent party more time is to reserve its rights to terminate. Although, as I understand, there are also risks in reserving one's rights. That's right. While a reservation of rights can buy more time, it can still be undone by inaction or subsequent conduct. Another important point to make is that a reservation of rights in the termination notice can have the effect of precluding the terminating party from subsequently relying on a different ground of termination and associated remedies. For example, if a termination notice relies solely on a contractual ground of termination, and particularly one that isn't predicated on breach, and the terminating party's rights are otherwise reserved, it may not be able to claim later that it had terminated the common law and claim loss of bargain damages. The principle here is that a right merely reserved is not a right exercised. Okay, so to conclude our discussions, what would you say are the key takeaways for a party considering terminating a contract? I guess the overriding message is that termination is a risky course of action, both commercially and legally, and should be treated as a party's last resort. It's therefore advisable to consider whether there might be any alternative options to termination, such as varying the terms of the contract or submitting the, to the contractual dispute resolution process. But if a party does decide to exercise its right to terminate, it needs to do so with a full understanding of the implications of its actions. It needs to carry out a proper assessment of the legal, factual and technical merits of termination. In particular, whether a right to terminate actually exists, whether under the contract or at common law, and whether there are facts to support it. As we discussed earlier, it's crucial that the termination notice is clearly drafted and strictly compliant with any and all contractual requirements relating to the timing, form and substance of the termination notice. And to make matters more difficult, it's important to act promptly albeit without rushing, to avoid any arguments of affirmation and or waiver. As I mentioned earlier, a reservation of rights can buy more time, but it comes with limitations and risks. And of course, a party considering termination should keep a meticulous record of correspondence and other documents that evidence the factual and legal basis for that termination, as well as the process followed in terminating the contract in case the matter becomes litigious. Yeah, that's really important. Well, that was really illuminating, Jake. Thank you very much. For a recap of the key points that were discussed during this episode, please take a look at our handy checklist for suspending or terminating a construction contract, which can be downloaded from our website. The next podcast in our Construction Contract and Claims Management series will be on how to assess the legal merits of a claim, which will be hosted by James Doe, who is the UK Head of Construction and Infrastructure Disputes. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode.